Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. Hold on to your pants, it's time for a special episode. Hey everybody, this is Mike going it solo today. Well, not really solo, although we will talk a lot about solo gaming. I've got a special guest, one you've heard from before, the amazing Liz Davidson. Hey, I'm so happy to be back. Why do solo alone when we can talk about it together? That's exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Um, So if you don't know Liz, you know, you should. But she uh, runs Beyond Solitaire, the YouTube channel. And that's an amazing source of content. But she's also the main solo content creator for the Dice Tower in terms of solo reviews. And Liz, I've heard tell you might be trying to start a new podcast as well. You want to do a little uh, pitch for that real quick? Yes. So I am planning to release it maybe two weeks from now or so. But next week, I will have my inaugural guest for a podcast that I am going to try. I'm going to call it Beyond the Board. And I want to talk about historical and cultural issues related to board games. So trying to go to that next level and talk about deeper things like what board games mean to society, what they say about us, what they said about people of the past, how we interpret history through board games. And I'll be bringing on guests to help me. I'm actually excited. I got my very first guest and he is a doctor. He got his doctorate at University of Missouri and he is going to be talking to me about Greek and Roman board games, like actual ancient ones. That's awesome. Can I just say that I'm... (laughs) I'm really happy you went with Beyond the Board for the working title. So I, I j- j- just to give full context here, I was kind of like uh, Sean Parker in The Social Network. Liz was like, what if it's Beyond the Board Games? And I was like, what if it's just Beyond the Board? Cut the game. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's Ooh. good. <laughs> Oh, I'm a nerd. Okay, uh, before we get into our topic today, which, by the way, we're going to be talking about war games and historical games, something that I feel like maybe uh, turns off or scares away some gamers. We're going to talk about how we got started in them, what the heck they even are, and give some suggestions for great ones you might want to play to kind of jump into what is seen as sort of a separate genre, even though we might discuss that they're not that separate at all. But before we get to all of that, I want to thank some of our Patreon patrons. And yeah, Patreon has been going really well lately. I'm blown away by the generosity, especially in such a trying economic times with the current crisis. People are really excited about the new rewards we have, uh, free previews of our upcoming videos, extra entries in contests, even playing games with us on Tabletop Simulator. And those have been really fun so far. So I uh, just want to thank three of our patrons this week. Uh, Jim McGovern, who is a co-op lover. Thank you, Jim. Harry Cade Larrabee, a co-op champion, the big boy over there. Uh, Thank you, Harry. And Gordy Reynolds, a co-op MVP. Uh, Thank you to all three of you. Thank you to all of our Patreon patrons. It is pretty amazing. We've been buying new uh, audio equipment. Colin got me on his subscription for sound effects. So if you watch some of my uh, upcoming playthroughs on YouTube, you'll see some (laughs) pretty fun stuff going on there. So yeah, it's it's all very exciting. And it's all thanks to you all and your support. So uh, we really appreciate you. All right. So uh, Liz, war games, historical games, anyone who goes to Beyond Solitaire knows you are the queen, the master of these, you know, when you're not doing amazing uh, tutorials on Mage Knight. 
So what are some really, <laughs> just got to throw that in there. <laughs> uh, so, so what are some uh, war games, historical games, things you've been playing lately that you've been enjoying? So I'm actually far from the queen of war games. I would say the current queen of war games would have to be Morgan, <laughs> the designer of Pendragon. That's a good but, point. That is a good point. We, we have not designed any ourselves. <laughs> so uh, I've been more and more into war games over the past couple of years, especially in the past maybe six months to a year. And I am just into them because I love historical themes. I Actually, somebody recommended that I play Pavlov's House, and I'd never really thought about the Battle of Stalingrad before, but I played the game and it was a blast. I had such a good time. And, you know, I, I liked learning about the game and finding out about the history behind it. I also actually did that with Lisboa, which is a Euro, but I've been playing more and more war games because those are the ones that really have their center in historical events and recreation of those events and the situations that led to them. Um, for starters, I always recommend uh, if you want a Roman game, which of course you should, obviously, said the Latin teacher, uh, you want to try Wars of Marcus Aurelius from Hollenspiel. If you want some more modern stuff, I actually recommend you look at Dan Versen games, specifically stuff by David Thompson. He's very accessible. Uh, he also did Undaunted Normandy if you want to play a two-player game that is competitive, very snappy. And... I mean, of course, you can always just jump off the deep end and play a coin, but I, I don't necessarily recommend that for your first outing. <laughs> yeah, Liz, you pretty much named all of the ones that I've been playing recently, many because you recommended them. <laughs> I would say the majority because you recommended them. I'm a trendsetter. Oh, absolutely. You, you are a uh, an influencer. Isn't that what they call you? <laughs> yes. I will be taking selfies with all of my war games in exotic locations. Ooh, you can go to exotic locations right now. I'm very impressed. I'm just stuck oh, in my house every it's day. It's just called a Zoom background, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I've, uh, I have I played a bunch of Pavlov's house. Uh, I actually have videos going up for that, I think, uh, the week after this podcast airs. That one is really great. Um, I What else have I been playing? I've been playing, if people check the YouTube channel, I've been playing several coins, uh, mainly Cuba Libre, known as the easiest coin, and then... Uh, as Liz already mentioned, Pendragon. And what else have I been playing Wargamish? Well, here's the crazy thing. <laughs> I didn't have that many. And then uh, one of our uh, YouTube viewers uh, who actually won a contest, this is how generous one-stop co-op shop people are, and just board gamers in general. <laughs> they won a contest. <laughs> I sent them a game. Uh, that They won the last Shelf Life contest. And they were like, hey, do you want me to send you like three or four war games to cover? And you can just get them back to me whenever. So, yes, I said, of course. <laughs> so so uh, th they are, by the way, a huge fan of Beyond Solitaire, Liz. So a lot of the games they have, they said they got because of you. Aww. So I have I have a giant pile sitting next to like my shelf right now. I have uh, Wars of Marcus Aurelius, which Liz already mentioned. I have uh, Comancheria, which I think is about uh, Native American struggles in the U.S. I don't know a lot about that one. I have, uh, what's the third one? Oh, I have uh, Castle Itter, which is one that I know uh, Liz is excited to play. It's also by David yes. Thompson, a similar system to Pavlov's House, which I really enjoyed. Um, and then I got a few more. Yeah, I don't know. I, oh, uh, Warfighter, uh, Dan Versen Games. Oh, I'm so Speaking jealous. Of, That's so bad. Yeah, yeah, Warfighter. And uh, our patrons voted I'm going to do the Shadow War uh, standalone set, which is all about like stealth and like trying not to get spotted as you like sneak around at night. Um, it's just an awesome theme. Oh, have you gotten? Uh, so I'm going to lend you Conflict of Heroes after I film a playthrough for it. I think. 
Yeah, I, I did hear back from them, but I'm not sure what's happening with it. But I, I'm super excited to play that one. And that actually brings up, I did want to talk about my history as a kind of war gamer and historical gamer. Because Liz, I think you have found your identity with that more clearly. But the weird thing for me is I used to be, many years ago, heavily into wargaming. And primarily a solo wargaming. And I'm not really sure how it started. I guess like in high school and even like early college, I was playing, um, you know, the kind of the standard things people might play like Risk and Axis and Allies. And I enjoyed those games fine. Are you telling me that you're an apostate? I mean, no, no, no. Like back, back then, I'm, I'm sure I would not enjoy that much these days. But then I, I was going on a nascent BGG. You know, it seemed pretty early back then. And maybe I'm totally wrong, but I want to say that back then war games were pretty highly rated, like historical games. I was coming through BGG today and except for uh, Twilight Struggle, I didn't see any like war games or kind of like war focused historical games in the top 100 at all. They have things that are called war games in there, like Twilight Imperium. I mean, I guess there is war in that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> certainly, certainly not historical. But but I feel like back in the day, I was just on BGG, like trolling the top 100, like I should play cool games. And I feel like Hammer of the Scots was on there or at least close to the top 100. Yeah, so I played like Hammer of the Scots and a bunch of those kind of, uh, you know, what do you call them? Like block games, I guess. Like the, the old Columbia block games. Yeah, I think that is what they're called. Because it's not Hex Encounter, it's blocks that you literally are moving around the board. Yeah, and, and I, I really love this uh, kind of functionality. I, I don't see it in modern games much, but like you would actually turn the blocks to show their relative strength. So like they'd start out on their four side facing up and as they took damage, you would rotate them to their third and their second. So Hammer of the Scots was one that I really loved. And I guess this will kind of go into like, what is a historical game? What is a war game? But something that really struck me, I'd always been, n- not to your level, <laughs> but I'd always enjoyed like social studies and history and kind of geeking out, especially World War II. I was uh, I used to like get from the library all the uh, the Jane's manuals, you know, on like the different types of tanks and like uh, airplanes and things and just kind of geek out and play uh, video games focused on that. So when I saw like a board game like Hammer of the Scots, like had details and what actually happened and how accurate was Braveheart and who was William Wallace and all that kind of stuff in the back. I just was really kind of invested in that and just made the game more enjoyable for me. And then from there, I went into uh, like Combat Commander and a lot of kind of more like chip-based games, I guess you would call them. A lot of things from GMT. And yeah, so I've had a big hiatus from it. Like, I don't think I bought a war game probably in four or five years until recently when I've kind of gotten back into it. Thanks to you, Liz. Were you kind of into those games going back? I know you've been a fan of history. And as a Latin teacher, I figure that kind of fits into your regular professional life, right? Yeah, you know what's interesting is I started out thinking that I just wanted to play fantasy games, which I do like. Um, actually, let me see. When did I really start covering these games? I'm looking at my own. Oh, are you pouring through your YouTube channel? <laughs> I'm just searching for myself. If you search Wars of Marcus Aurelius, I'm the first hit, which is hilarious. Um, about a year ago, I covered the Wars of Marcus Aurelius on my channel, which means that I had been playing for a while before that. So even longer than I thought. Um, <laughs> um, but for me, yeah, it's. I think it's... I had not really started to try to connect my gaming life with my historical interests other than, you know, adapting games for my classroom, which is fun until probably around then. And 
you know, I think it's because I felt like maybe I should keep things separate. Maybe gaming should be a separate hobby, but I just can't help myself. Um, you fall into old habits, you know, anything Roman, you know, put a Roman on it. And I'm like, Ooh, I, I want that because it's what I like. And I really have started to enjoy games with historical context in general, because I find myself reading books about them and learning more. You know, I had I didn't know anything about the earthquake in Lisbon until I played Lisboa. And then I ended up reading a whole book about it. It was fascinating, you know, learning all the history behind it, all the figures who were involved, what it meant internationally as an event. And I started thinking about how much I like games that are very attentive to their historical context and that weave that theme through everything in the game. And so that's something I've been chasing a lot, which pretty naturally led me to wargaming because wargame designers tend to be history buffs as well. They are really thinking about that context when they design their games. And, you know, it's not like, for example, Orléans. I love it. I do not really think that that game is a reflection of any kind of, you know, medieval France. <laughs> what, what about uh, what about Carcassonne? I mean, that's clearly historically based, right? The the monks and their obsession with uh, surrounding tiles, you know? Definitely. Um, so, you know, I think what's attracting me to war games, and actually I would use a broader category of historical games, is I'm looking for that connection, watching games model life. And then, of course, as somebody who likes to study history, I wonder, what are our games telling us about history? And also, what are they telling us about ourselves and our own interpretation? Because when you do history, there's always two stories, right? There's the modern story and then the historical one that you're trying to reconstruct. And watching those play out in a game is really exciting for me. I'll jump in with that, too, because like I said, I really do enjoy. And, and I guess this might get kind of into our definition of what a historical game is in a moment. But I enjoy games that kind of show that historicity and show that's a word, isn't it? Historicity. Yes. Yes, it is. is. It? Okay, cool. <laughs> Let's show like that attentiveness to research, like make me think, wow, this designer is really learned and has really spent a lot of time. You know, like I might feel about a documentary or uh, a reenactment kind of movie or something. So I really enjoy the books that have like the campaign book or the thing that kind of walks you through things. And what I like best, and this is kind of on my mind because uh, I have been doing a lot of David Thompson games recently. Again, uh, Pavlov's House uh, just covered that one or just filmed that one. And I love where they delve into the lack of surety and the lack of confidence, because that's something that always frustrated me personally in social studies classes and like history classes in college when things were presented as the be all end all. Because I, I was that like snotty kid who was like, oh, well, should we really celebrate Columbus Day? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I was that annoying child who thought Thanksgiving was stupid. Um, See, I would have loved you in my class. I like questioners. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I'm very critical, you know, like, I, I got a copy of, uh, what is it, Howard Zinn. Um, oh, you know People's talking History about? of the United States? Yes, People's History of the United States, like, very early on, and, and that just kind of shaped me into being critical of a lot of stuff. So I, I love when when designers as researchers kind of call out to that. And they're like, well, I don't really know if this is what happened, but here's here's the three sources that said it might have happened this way. And it's slightly more likely. So here's what I went with, you know, and I, I just love seeing that uh, that thought process, because taking off my reviewer YouTube like channel hat for a second as a designer, all we've made so far is a like Mad Max inspired post-apocalyptic game. No research needed for actually, you know, I did do a little research. I, I researched the demographics of the area the game was set in and made the characters we had in the game match the demographics. 
bam, research. But uh, Dark Dealings, I didn't do any research into like goblins and wizards. And uh, <laughs> You didn't? No, I didn't. And our upcoming game, Spare Parts, I, I didn't do any research into uh, giant mech suits and robots. Um, except for like watching, you know, some episodes of Gundam or Star Blazers or something. So, yeah, I, I, I'm just really impressed by that because it's not necessarily how my brain works. But I think it's amazing that like these people can make games that are fascinating, successful, mechanically engaging games, but are also a history lesson, a jumping off point to greater things. And you like reading a book after each of the games you play, reading multiple books and just diving deep into some historical topic. I'm so impressed by that and just kind of the the mindset behind that. I wish I read more. I wish I read more. <laughs> <laughs> I never have time. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, it's just, I like things that make me more curious about the world. So if a game can do that for me, that automatically gets it more attention from me than something that's a little bit more run of the mill. So, so what is, let's dive into kind of this maybe fraught topic somewhat. And I, and I like your, your wider kind of picture. What is a historical game to you what does that mean what does it look like what does it not look like what tries to be it and fails what do you think liz that's a good question so the definite the the question about what is a war game is actually something that causes flame wars in facebook groups about war games (laughs) Um, of course i so i have a phd in religious studies and one of the first things that we had to do is try to define religion and you quickly find that that is extremely difficult even something that seems like an obvious concept is very hard definitions are hard. So I'm just going to preface our entire discussion with that. Good luck actually defining anything. Enjoy yourself. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but so I think that whilst a lot of people think of war games specifically as conflict simulations, um, I prefer to think of myself as a historical gamer because it encompasses more. And I think it more accurately describes what interests me because anything for me that is attempting to comment on model or immerse itself in a historical period, including recent ones, would count for me as a historical game. So it makes things like Pax Pamir fit in the same category as something like Pendragon. Because to me, those are all in the same spectrum of games that are recreating historical circumstances and immersing you in a time period, as opposed to games that are, you know, if you think about something like a Hex Encounter game, that that comes as a traditional war game, but my interest in it would again be, okay, how does this model a historical period and what is it telling us about it? Yeah, that's really interesting because I think some of the most popular war games, at least, I don't know if people would call them historical games, are something like, uh, you know, a squad leader or advanced squad leader, of course, or uh, on a lighter side, Memoir 44. And those are all like hex-based war games. They tend to be based often on real battles in some sense. They might even have a little blurb about what happened in the real battle at the beginning. Would that kind of like pass muster for you? Let's go to Memoir 44, something super light. They might be based on a real battle. There might have actually been like more tanks than infantry there, and they have more tanks on the board. Is that enough to kind of count as historical for you? I'm not sure how I would feel about that. I mean, I wouldn't call it not historical because it's set in a historical period, but in terms of what I would personally be looking for... It wouldn't work. Because of like the curiosity? Yeah. Yeah, I actually have that issue with Conflict of Heroes, which I really enjoy as a game. It's so fun. Like pew pew, tanks, great, awesome. Really enjoy it. But it's not a game that I'm going to probably do like a huge commentary about because what's there a comment on? I mean, if you are interested in historical units and you want to talk about tanks, which I don't, then it's probably actually a lot more interesting in that respect. But because it's just a firefight game, very tactical, 
you know, you can play that game and have no knowledge of the historical context whatsoever. And having more knowledge, I don't necessarily think would enrich that particular gaming experience. So it's definitely a war game. But what I call it, I mean, I guess you call it a historical game because it's set during Operation Barbarossa. But it's not what I personally would latch onto for a long period of time. Does that make sense? It does. And I wonder if some of it is the depth into which they look into a single event or a single group of events. Like, let me give you an example. This is going back again several years to when I was doing more war games. Um, I was really into uh, the, I think it's Simmons games. They did uh, Friedrich and Maria and Bonaparte and Marengo. Ew, these sound good. Oh, oh these are amazing games. Now, uh, none of them are solo. Sorry. <laughs> There's probably some uh, variant online for them. So yeah, so just to take it as an example, Bonaparte and Marengo is this very big game uh, modeling one specific battle. And it has like this whole companion book that talks about the reasoning behind every choice that was made, like the detail by detailed accounts of like all these crazy things that happened, how Napoleon win this battle, which units were there. And I know that at least personally for that one, it had such a uh, in-depth treatment of that one conflict that I did go and like read several articles on it and kind of, I, I didn't read a whole book, but I read like some chapters and I got really into that battle for a little while. Whereas, uh, you know, I, I don't think a single scenario in uh, Advanced Squad Leader or Memoir 44 or Combat Commander, even though Combat Commander is one of my favorite war games of all time, I don't think any of those, it's just like a blip. It's like a page or two of rules. And they might mention in a few sentences what happened. And, you know, it doesn't mean they didn't do a lot of research. They might have done a ton of research, but I don't think uh, it gets shared as much when it's just like one little piece of a whole game with 50 scenarios, 100 scenarios. Does, does that make sense? I, I don't know. <laughs> no, it totally makes sense. And one of the things that, you know, I really like David Thompson's work. I'm not going to make a secret of that. Uh, one of the things I like so much about what he does is that he always does a companion book. And it's clear that he got really into the battle that he was you know, making a game about. So just for clarification, David Thompson's been involved with a lot of different games, one of which is War Chess. So not all of his games are historical games, but he does he does a lot of solitaire war games. So there's Castle Itter, which is actually the first one he designed, or the second one published in the series. There's Pavlov's House. And he's working on another called Soldiers and Postmen's Uniforms, which I'm excited about. And don't forget uh, by Stealth and Sea, which I think is a great one that we we both played for the Kickstarter. That was great, actually. Uh, he is obsessed with detail. He finds historical images uh, in By Stealth and Sea. The ships that are in the harbor uh, that you can try to destroy are based on his readings of actual logs of what ships came and went during that time period so that you get an accurate set of ships to attack. Don't you love that? Just to pause for a second. Like, (laughs) first of all, the idea of David Thompson, I've never met a guy, but the idea of David Thompson pouring over log books. And then also the idea that I'm guessing like 0.5% of the people that play by stealth and sea are going to (laughs) care. You know what I mean? It enriches my experience. And I also, you know, I I think you just got a copy of Wars of Marcus Aurelius. I adore it because it's, first of all, it's funny, as you've noticed, but also it, it, it refers to lots of real events. So like that, oh, Faustina card is based on, you know, Faustina actually thinking Marcus Aurelius is dead and trying to find a new man and like to do something about remaining empress. And then it creates a huge crisis when it turns out that Marcus Aurelius is not in fact dead. It makes a reference to Alexander the quack prophet who was a definitely quack that Marcus Aurelius was quite taken with for a time. It was a guy who had this talking snake. 
allegedly, and you know, got a whole bunch <laughs> of people really into like if you read Lucian of Samosata, he has this whole diatribe against uh like against Alex uh against uh, Alexander. It's absolutely fantastic. And all these things pop up in Wars Marks Aurelius, and it just it just warms my heart, you know? Uh, so tell us your fantastic spot in the rule book. Cause I laughed so hard when you said that to me, it brought back so many good memories. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> gosh. So, so I, I'm reading through cause I, cause I do this again with all these games. I do this. I'm, I haven't even played wars of Marcus Aurelius yet, but I'm reading through the back where they go through every event card. And I'm like, just kind of immersing myself in the little like touches of history and research in there. And it's like, really, it, it has a little bit of humor, but it's pretty dry. It's pretty straightforward. Like, here's what happened. Here's what the person did. And then I get to this card that's called Maximus. And I'm like, oh, I know that. That's a guy from uh, from that movie. And I'm reading it and it's like super serious. And it's talking about how Maximus was supposed to be the emperor, but uh, Commodus stole the honor from him. And he had to fight in the gladiator like uh, games. And I'm like, oh my God, this actually happened? I had no idea. And then, <laughs> and then it gets in this line, which is like, and uh, all of this was chronicled by the great historian Ridleyus Scotus. And I'm like, you jerk. <laughs> So it's like all this this trolling joke about the movie Gladiator and how completely ahistorical it is. And I was just so, I was like totally buying it. I was 100% in until I got to Ridley Scottis. And it's like the biggest paragraph in the Dag Companion book. You know, it's like the thing that they went into the most detail. And I'm like, ah, God damn it. <laughs> so yes, uh, it, it was, it was the, it, it's such a nerd joke. Like no one I told it to afterwards, except for Liz, found it even like slightly as funny as I did. But I was laughing about that. <laughs> for like a week afterwards. <laughs> it will, I think it was really funny. And I also, one of the other things I like about games like that is that jokes like that can happen. It's There's a lot of winking and nodding and learning together. And, you know, when you know that context, it really enriches the game experience. And I just think that that's really special. You know, it's interesting you say that. It makes me think of a game that is totally not historically based, but I think gives the same feel. Uh, Final Girl that we just both recently covered and then also going back further, uh, The Last Night on Earth or Last Night on Earth from Flying Frog Games. Yeah. Both both of those are ones that immerse themselves in their genre and theme and like make kind of call out jokes based on it because you know the genre. Like if you know slasher movies or you know zombie movies, like uh, Last Night on Earth has a card called Last Night on Earth where two of the characters sleep with each other and <laughs> lose their next turn. And it's just hilarious because, you know, all the like poorly planned sexual activities of people in horror movies before they get murdered. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> I, I just, yeah. So I, I think anything, not just historical games, anything that like is a deep dive and encourages people who are lovers and knowledgeable about that topic lends itself well to kind of inside humor and, jokes that are only funny to you if you kind of uh, are in the know to get them. Yeah, which is also interesting because it takes us back into, you know, I like games that are thematic historically, but I also do like just games that are very thematic. I don't really think that those interests are that far from each other. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's uh, it, it's because I feel the same way. I'm, I'm definitely into that. Like Dawn of the Zeds, I guess I'm on zombies, is <laughs> a game that I really think is great for its theme, but it's not at all historical. I, I guess it's... It, it, for, for me, it's sort of, uh, as a game designer, like being impressed with how they married the two. Like yes. how I how you brought to life this tiny detail in a mechanical way that is often sometimes like streamlined and still very easy to fit into the game's overall rule set. With all that being said, a big thing that came up as I, and this has just kind of come up in general as I've been talking about more games on our Slack 
Join our Slack, everybody, by the way. <laughs> Liz is on there. Or on our YouTube channel comments, like uh, covering things like coin. I've had people who have said, and, and I'm wondering if you heard this too, Liz, uh, those games look awesome. That looks really cool. But I don't play historical games. I don't play war games. I don't want to play things based on real life. Do you ever hear that? You know what? No. I've never had anybody say that to me. I, I've, ha- I've had like five people in the last week say that to me. <laughs> That is really interesting because I can't imagine not wanting to play things based on real life. That's a very massive taste difference. And I will say it's it's not always a a holistic kind of thing. Some yeah. of them were focused on modern conflicts. And, and that I, I understand much more. Like yeah. uh, Warfighter, uh, the Shadow War one I'm going to do a video on. It's like you're going into North Korea and like shooting North Koreans. And I can see that being like... That, that's yeah, not a comfortable thing to even consider, you know? <laughs> like it's, well, I've actually not... had that conversation with David Thompson. He doesn't like – so one of the reasons he likes World War II is that it is recent enough to do a lot of research, but it's far enough back that you don't feel like you're disrespecting actual veterans or families in a very direct way. Does that make sense? Oh, um, it, it totally does. I mean, I, yeah, I would hope that I, I wouldn't feel like I was disrespecting any Saxon raiders while playing Pendragon, you know? Right. Well, you know, my ancestor Neal is in there of the nine houses. That's right. This is a real thing. Liz's ancestor is not only a card in Pendragon, but has his own box of like awesomeness where he can help the, uh, that's the the Scotty, right? That it can help the Scotty like raid way more successfully and build up these humongous raids that can just crush the Britons. So good on you, Liz. You did it. Yes. No, I'm ashamed of my ancestors sitting here learning Latin, loving the Romans. (laughs) (laughs) You're a traitor to the cause of the family. (laughs) I did it wrong. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, so that's the thing that interests me about that, though, is I actually really like the idea, if respectfully done, of using games to model and to touch on really sensitive parts of our world in our history. So I really like Labyrinth, the war on terror. I love it because it hits on events from my life that I remember, that I remember watching on the news that I remember, you know, from being a kid up till now. And it's, you know, talking about the world on terror, war on terror is not a pleasant thing. We live in a scary world that is filled with things that we don't understand and maybe don't want to, you know, I think that confronting it in a game is an interesting way to meditate on the circumstances that lead to a world like the one that we live in and the push and pull that influences that world that we live in. And I'm really grateful that we have games as models where we can explore that in what I think is the safest possible way so that it gives us a a way to focus and to think about hard topics. And that's something that a lot of games that are not historical games don't typically do. And so I like that there's room in my gaming life for something like that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think there is a right way to do it. I think part of it does go back to the designer being transparent about this being a version of history or a interpretation of history. Because I'm thinking even of Labyrinth, uh, I'm pretty, it's been a while since I've played that, but I, I think Volko, the designer, like right in the front was like, uh, this game is subscribing to a philosophy of the war on terror that I don't think is actually true, but it allowed me to kind of model this overall conflict in the game better. 
And I, I think, uh, I think, uh, gosh, what, what is it? Like the number two game on BGG, uh, Twilight Struggle. Yeah, Twilight I think Twilight Struggle, Struggle says, says the exact same kind of thing. They're like, we don't really believe in the uh, domino theory. But, you know, if one country called, falls to communism, all these other countries around it will fall to communism too. But it, it made like the game mechanics function better. But having that transparency so that I think you're less likely to offend somebody or, you know, kind of uh, hit them the wrong way because the history you are presenting through the game is not the way they understand it, not the way they view it. Just being humble and saying, I don't really know, but here's the research I've done. Here's here's a guess or here's a way that could work, even if I don't fully believe in it. I, I don't know. I, I think that's I think that's important for a designer looking into kind of going into this stuff. Yeah, I agree. And I think it also is good in that it actually hits on the point that I think is the most interesting about historical games, just that even though they don't subscribe to the philosophy that led to that game, you're creating a historical interpretation that people will play. And that will mentally model that historical event for them, even if the model is not one that you subscribe to. And I think that it's really interesting to look at and talk about situations where that happens. What are we saying about history? What are we saying about ourselves? How do we want to see the world? Why would we do it this way to make a game out of it anyway? I mean, those are all questions that I think are really interesting and that we don't actually talk about enough in board game land. I, I like conversations that take me to harder places than, is this fun? Is this not fun? Yeah, we, we talk about this all the time. I'm sure you do too. And in, in my teaching job, kind of the idea of courageous conversations and living in discomfort during a conversation, like not running away from it because you're uncomfortable. I'm a former academic. I love being uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's interesting you say how like kind of a game can shape your view now, uh, the coin games I've played are pretty far back in history, uh, the Cuban Revolution and, of course, <laughs> ancient Britain. But it's interesting that if I think about which side I played more in those games, I started naturally sympathizing with them more, which I think would be a powerful thing, like kind of to see, even if you don't agree with their philosophy or worldview or the actions they took to try to see through the eyes of your enemy. I, I don't know. I, I'm a person who thinks that should be something we should try to do, at least to understand them, even if we vehemently disagree with them and have to oppose them. Yes, because how do you oppose if you don't understand? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great way to put it. And yeah, I, th I think that understanding is important. Now, again, you know, me, me feeling like the barbarians were justified in attacking Roman Britain, that's not, uh, <laughs> not going to have any impact on my life going forward. Whereas... Uh, have you played Freedom, the Underground Railroad, Liz? You know what? I have not. That is on my to-do list. I would really like to play it, but I heard it's a really rough play because you get so emotionally attached and it's such a raw topic. Yeah, I was going to say that. That's exactly what I was going to share. And I don't know. I feel kind of silly saying this because I'm just basic white guy on a podcast. <laughs> but um, when I played I played that a while back. I borrowed a copy. I played it uh, solo and I played it with my wife. And both times I was... Um, yeah, I, I was very emotionally struck just in kind of the process of playing through it and thinking through what I was doing. I mean, it's you're just moving like little chits around the board, but it didn't feel like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And th th that is one that is further back, like further back than World War II for sure, but clearly still has wide ranging implications for like the modern United States. So right. it, it, it almost feels more immediate than... 
like some of our wars, if that makes sense. I actually think that that's accurate. I would say that the legacy of slavery in the United States has a more day-to-day impact on our lives in the news, in schools, in neighborhoods. I mean, it's so much more real and you can see it every day compared with even, you know, the Vietnam War, which I feel like a lot of my students know nothing about at all. Yeah. Um, you know, history is immediate either because it's important to you or because it's actually immediate. And I think that freedom would fall into that former category. And yeah, and I like talking about, I thought it was really interesting you talking about the, the characters you play or the ones you start to sympathize with. It makes you think a lot, right? About which side you typically play in board games. And I actually think about this as a teacher. So, I mean, I'm a Latin teacher. I teach about Rome. They're a bunch of genocidal maniacs, if you really think about it. Um, <laughs> you know, the Romans were not always a great force of order and goodness. They were also heartless conquerors who enslaved people and abused other areas for their resources. And, you know, it's also most of Roman history and literature that we have is, is written by men. And so if you are teaching a class and you're telling those stories, are you accidentally teaching your students to sympathize with imperialists? And so I actually make an effort, and so do my, my colleagues at work, to tell different stories. You know, some of the stories we write in Latin are about us, about our world, about our students. You know, you can have them write with you. But we also made an effort this year to write about women, to write about characters from other parts of the Roman Empire so it wasn't just Italian people. Um, you know, making that effort in the classroom also makes me think about effort in games. You know, who are we playing does that actually mean anything to us? Do we tell ourselves that it doesn't, but maybe it does something we can't see? I wonder about all that. And it does. I mean, it it almost justifies the people who are like, I don't want to play anything historical. Let me go kill some orcs. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I could I could definitely see where they're coming from. And yeah, how, how many games ask me to play as like the Nazi Germans? And then, you know, do I cheer in my heart when I win a hard fought battle against the American side in that battle. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, it, there are challenging questions that maybe it might be easier to ignore, but it is worth asking. Yeah. You know, I actually brought it up very briefly in my dice tower review of conflict of heroes, uh, because it's called conflict of heroes, but it's about fighting between world war two, Germany and Russia, <laughs> which, uh, I understand that conflict of heroes is a system. This was conflict of heroes, awakening the bear, but I mean, especially because a lot of the solo scenarios kind of have you playing as Nazi Germany. And you can pretend that it's not happening because the game is so ahistorical in terms of actual gameplay. But if you think about it, I personally do find that uncomfortable. If somebody was playing a Civil War game with me, I'd really not want to play the Confederate side, probably even more intensely. But you you get comments from people who hear you make those comments and you get a whole lot of moralizing about, well, you know, everyone's a hero to themselves or somebody always sees you as the enemy or blah, 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 blah. And I don't really actually think that's it's like, what nerve of yours did I touch? Why do you think that you need to defend this to me? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I I never want to demonize an individual soldier, especially, I mean, gosh, like the Russian side. <laughs> they, yeah, <laughs> they, they often didn't get a lot of options. You know what I mean? <laughs> Putting, they did not ask for that, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, as a whole, clearly these are forces working for ends and, and carrying out actions that are pretty terrible, just as our own armed forces have many times in the past carried out actions that were pretty horrific in kind of a oh, moral yeah. sense. Uh, we are not perfect by any stretch. And that's also something that we should be thinking about. So with uh, it's a lot of deep discussion. 
<laughs> how do how do we recommend <laughs> to get back to the board games? Uh, how, how do we recommend someone who maybe doesn't feel like a hundred percent into this genre, doesn't want to play a coin game where they got to run like four factions and play for hours and hours? How might they get into this? What are some suggestions? I, I know you threw some uh, cool titles out at the beginning that might be a little bit uh, lower kind of upkeep. What do you think, Liz? How would you suggest people to kind of get into historical games? Ew. Well, I think the first thing that I would say is that, honestly, just because somebody says, oh, it's a war game, that doesn't actually mean that it's that hard or that it's scary. You should never let people intimidate you by acting smart about a war game. Because sometimes it's just like pew pew, like little dudes on a map. Uh, and sometimes the games are just good fun. Like Pavlov's House is it's it's got its intellectual side, but it's actually just a game about dealing with limited resources, crazy bombings, and trying to hold this house together. And mechanically, it's really not that different from other games that you've played. Uh, one of the things I like about Wars of Marks Aurelius and why I recommend it so much is that again, you know, you're really there's some chits involved, but it's a card game where you have multi-use cards that you can play for various purposes. That is not any different from a number of other board games and other genres. And so I like those because they are mechanically accessible and you're not going to be doing anything in those games that you don't already know how to do if you play board games. And I think that that's actually true. Like even if coin games, I mean, it's still move pieces, roll dice, play cards strategically. They're just different permutations of concepts that you already know. And I think that kind of removing that intimidation factor is something that I would like to do. Now, where I do think the intimidation might be somewhat justified is when you get into a genre of game. So I think a really good example is kind of like chit-based hex war games. They'll sometimes, and this is something all games do, they'll sometimes make the mistake in like the rules and stuff of assuming too much familiarity with concepts. Like I'm thinking like a lot of like these big uh, war games are based around like the idea of like zones of control or of uh, lines of supply, especially like the big ones, like when mm -hmm. I used to play like Europe engulfed and stuff. And they'll build off that and it won't seem that scary or intimidating anymore because I've played something like this before, you know, compared to a dungeon crawler. If you've played Dungeons and Dragons if you've played like a few other board based dungeon crawlers, you know, something like Gloomhaven might still be a little bit more uh, intense because it's got a lot of new com uh, mechanics in there. But a lot of things you play will just use variations on those same themes. And you'll be like, oh, I'm used to this. So I think war games might seem scarier when they're within a specific genre that kind of uh, presents itself as something where they expect you to already have some knowledge, which would have me push people toward like the games you're talking about. Because I don't think. Uh, any of the David Thompson stuff we've talked about is doing things that have been done before. He's kind of doing his own thing. So he has to teach you from ground zero. He has to teach you from the beginning and it makes it an easier experience or same thing with wars of Marcus Aurelius. I've read the rules and I'm like, nothing in here is complicated, but I don't think that's because it's like borrowing from other games. I like the way <laughs> you don't have unit movement in there, you know, except for the, the, uh, the yeah. barbarians, I guess, move a little bit, but like your armies are just in a box and it's like, they're over there, you know? So <laughs> Yeah, I think kind of like these standalone titles might be the best place to start because if you have no experience. Yeah, I do have one other recommendation. So I'm going to, I'll give you a sneak peek of my next Dice Tower review. Uh, it might be out by the time you air this, I don't know. But um, I'm doing a review of Field Commander Alexander from Dan Versen Games. And it, 
I don't know if the game has staying power forever because it's got a limited number of scenarios. And once you kind of figure out a winning strategy, it isn't necessarily as replayable. However, it's a wonderful intro game for just playing with counters because there aren't that many. The battle system is not that difficult. And the armies, this is a complaint among some gamers, but the enemy armies are static. So you move towards them. And so you have a lot more basic mechanisms to work with and it doesn't get overly crazy or overly complicated. And for that, I actually, I think it's a wonderful intro to, you know, moving your little counters around wargaming because it's so not intimidating. Yeah, that's great. I, I wish I knew more games to suggest like that, like things that are the intro and then the next one you play won't seem that intimidating. Because again, like I sort of started early with heavier ones. So nothing I see like when I got my first coin game, it didn't seem that tough because <laughs> I'm just kind of used to those sort of games already, you know. But yeah, I, I'm so far removed from like the beginning. So that's great. So that was uh, what was it again? Alexander? Commander Alexander. So it's actually part of a, there's a field commander series. So there's field commander Rommel, which is actually the first one in the series. And then there is um, field commander Alexander, which is the second one. And then there's field commander Napoleon, which is the one that everybody really goes crazy over and says, it's amazing. I actually really want to try it. I'm very curious, but I thought, I think field commander Alexander was a great starting point for games like that because it was just a very fun, chill experience. I liked it a lot. Awesome. All right. Well, we, we've ranged around a bit. That's what you get in these uh, special one-stop co-op shop episodes. <laughs> but if you uh, liked some of the discussion you heard, especially there in the middle, uh, check out Beyond the Board. Uh, Lizzie, have any idea when you might be trying to drop your first episode? I guess you got to see how everything yeah, goes. Right? I'm interviewing next Wednesday, May t- Hang on, I'm in August on my computer calendar. That was amazing. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm interviewing next Wednesday, which is May 20th. So I'm hoping maybe I'll drop it either Memorial Day or the day after. Very cool. Yes, yeah, so, so look out for that soon. We'll certainly uh, share it on all of our channels so people can uh, look into it. Much appreciated. And yeah, Liz, thanks again. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. No, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. I appreciate it. And if you haven't, uh, go check out Beyond Solitaire and Liz's uh, content on the Dice Tower, especially if you're a Mage Knight fan. Liz has been doing a new series called uh, Dr. D Teaches, where she goes through uh, small aspects of Mage Knight in incredible detail. Uh, If you've ever found that game intimidating, she will walk you through all the where's and why's of every little aspect of the game. It's pretty great. Yes, I will. It is not scary after you sink in enough. I promise you will come out okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Thank you so much. I hope all of you are safe and healthy wherever you are. Uh, We're all going to get through this together one way or another (laughs) eventually. And uh, yeah, good gaming. We'll see you at the next stop. And Liz, thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another Top 5 list. Where the heck was I going with that? <laughs> <laughs>
Yes. So. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs>